right. Um, so I'm going to jump right in because you guys know me. I have a lot to say. And uh, now less time to say it. So I'm going to have to ask the Lord's help for what to say and what not to say. This morning's uh, message is titled, We Three Kings. And you have to kind of say it in your mind like that with a question mark after it, all right? So let's pray, and then we'll jump right in. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for all you are obviously doing this morning. Um, and Lord, I just ask that you would continue your faithfulness to your word in the lives of the people of this church. Lord, help me to say exactly what you would want me to say and nothing more. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to start with a scripture that is kind of unrelated to, seemingly unrelated to our Matthew series. It's Hebrews 1, uh, verse 1, and it says this, Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. And that last little phrase is what I think connects to what we're going to be talking about this morning, uh, because we are picking back up on our Matthew series in Matthew chapter 2 with visitors from some foreign land to Jerusalem and then Bethlehem, and they came because they saw signs in the heavens, in the skies. Now, these visitors were not casual watchers of the sky. I like to sit out in the summer and watch the night sky, watch the stars when I can. But if something changed up there from one night to the next, I probably wouldn't notice. It just looks like a lot of stars to me. But these visitors were not like that. These were the kind of folks who documented and kept track of exactly what was happening in the sky. They were acutely aware of what was happening above them, and not just them, but they came from a line of people that goes back generations, perhaps centuries or even millennia, that were archiving and tracking what was happening in the night sky. And so when something changed up there, they were going to be very, very aware of it. And whatever it is that they saw caused them, though, to do something more than just kind of make a note in a history book and say that was really interesting. They did something way more than that. It's almost as if they were expecting something to happen, that they were waiting for something to occur there. And when it did, they acted. So let's read the passage. This is from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12, and then... We're going to jump into some things, and we're probably going to have to bust a few myths about these guys, but let's read it first. It says this, <clears throat> now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you 
shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And you can insert a yeah, right, right there, you know. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So that's the passage. It's a very familiar passage. People know this all over the world. We've heard it all our lives. People who are not Christians, not believers, are probably at least vaguely familiar with this story because it's been on the fronts of Christmas cards and in nativity scenes for as long as any of us can remember. But what's true about these people and what's just tradition? Tradition would tell us that these guys are we three kings of Orient are, right? Who showed up in Bethlehem at the stable with the little drummer boy. But I've been reading the Bible for a long time. I still haven't found the little drummer boy. I don't think he's in there. Um, so let's ask a few questions. Were there three of them? Well, maybe, but nobody really knows. We assume there are three. That number is associated with these guys because Matthew talks about three gifts. There, but there's not, we're not even certain that there were only three gifts. Those could have been just the most significant gifts. We have no evidence that point to a specific number of visitors to Jerusalem and Bethlehem. There could have been two, could have been 10, could have been 50, could have been a big caravan of people moving into Jerusalem, right? We associate three because there were three significant gifts, and tradition would also tell us that those three gifts tell us something about who Jesus is and what he was here to do. For example, gold is always, maybe not always, but typically associated with kings. So when you give a gift of gold, it's implying kingship. Frankincense was literally an incense that would be burned to purify the air of like competing uh, smells that are not very pleasant. And in the first century, there would have been a lot of unpleasant smells. So frankincense was used to purify the air. And that points to, they say, God's purity, his holiness, the righteousness of Jesus. And then myrrh is said to indicate what Jesus was here to do. He came to give his life for us, and he accomplished that mission. Well, what does myrrh have to do with that? Myrrh was used as a, a way of preparing bodies for burial. You can kind of think of it in modern day terms as kind of like embalming. And I don't think it was actually used for embalming, I'm not sure, but that's the connection. So gold, frankincense, and myrrh are said to point to aspects of Jesus' life and his mission. Well, that's, that's nice, and I think it's really, really helpful. I think that's a very helpful picture when we read this passage. But we don't know for sure if that's why the Lord put that here in this portion of Matthew. What we do know 
for certain is that all three of those gifts were extremely expensive. So whoever these guys were, whoever these travelers were who came with a purpose, which we're going to get to in a little bit, we know for sure that they did not spare any expense. They gave costly gifts to Jesus. So who were they? Were they kings? I mean, kings have lots of money. That seems a reasonable guess. Well, historically, when we look at the record, it's almost definitely no. They probably weren't kings. In fact, we can just kind of safely say they weren't kings. Okay, that's like a tradition thing. They probably also weren't from the Orient. Okay, the next best thing that we can probably call them is wise men. There's, I think there's a better option. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But we can call them wise men, and that's reasonable because it's actually supported by Matthew in the passage we just read. Matthew says, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly from Jerusalem. What, but what does that term even mean? What does Matthew mean when he says wise men? It's probably not what we would assume just with our like 2023, almost said 2022, 2023 uh, mental picture of what it means to be wise. That's probably not what he's talking about. Well, to get the answer, or at least as close to the answer as we can possibly get, we have to go back in time. So hop in the Wayback Machine. If you have a Bible, turn back to Daniel chapter 4. We're going to go back to Daniel 4 and see if we can learn anything about these wise men who showed up in Matthew 2 after the birth of Christ. Matthew chapter 4, <clears throat> starting in verse 4, says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. So let me hit the pause button a minute. If you're, if you've, if you're listening, you may have noticed that so far in a number of places when I'm talking about these wise men, I've said things like, well, it might have been that, or it could have been true that this was the way it was, or perhaps that's how it went down. And the reason why I keep using words like that is because honestly, we don't really know much about these guys. In fact, the only thing we know really is what Matthew has already said to us, wise men from the East. We know that for sure from this passage. So what we're dealing with here as, as we talk about these issues 
it all falls under the umbrella of something called historical conjecture. And historical conjecture is the best guess that we can make based on historical information that we have that's not entirely complete. So what I mean is, I'm not making this stuff up, right? I don't mean I'm making it up. But imagine you like pull out a puzzle. We always put a puzzle together on New Year's Day. It's like a family tradition. Let's, let, imagine you pull out a puzzle and you start putting it together and you realize when you're getting kind of toward the end of the process and you're running out of puzzle pieces in your box that you're missing like 75 to 100 pieces of this puzzle out of 1,000. Well, you put it together the best you can, but you're not going to have a full picture of what you're supposed to be seeing. So when you get it all done, you look at it with all the holes in there and you say, okay, I think this is what's going on in the picture. The best that I can tell from what I can see is this, but there are some pieces missing. So I just want you to keep that in mind because as I go on through the rest of this message, I'm going to stop saying things like might and could have and perhaps. I'm just going to say what we know or what we think we know based on what we what we see, what we can see, but there are holes, all right? So keep that in mind. So here's what we know. Hundreds of years before the arrival of Jesus on the scene, the Israelites were exiled to Babylon. That exile formally lasted about 70 years, and when it was over, many Israelites stayed in the area. They had, you have to assume at that point, they were, uh, they found some kind of work, they found a way to make a living, they established a family, they settled down, they stayed there for generations in some cases. And so Jewish culture kind of started to flourish in this area of Babylon. Well, one of the people who stayed behind was Daniel. And he stayed behind because he found a place of prominence in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord sort of organized things and gave Daniel certain skills and uh, awarenesses to be able to help King Nebuchadnezzar. And he served King Nebuchadnezzar, and then he served uh, King Belshazzar, who was the last king of Babylon. And then he served Darius the Mede, who was the first king after the overthrow of Babylon. And then he served Cyrus the Persian. Daniel had a long career. He was probably kind of old. But here we see in Daniel 4 that he's with Nebuchadnezzar the first king that he served, and Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Who does Nebuchadnezzar call on to help him with this dream? Well, he sends out a decree that the wise men of Babylon are going to come and help him. Figure this out. And just a sentence or two later then, he uses four words, and I learned through this process that most scholars, when they see these four words, they don't think that these are categories of wise men, like wise men could be this or this or this or this. Instead, these four words are synonyms for wise men. So when we talk about the wise men in Daniel chapter 4, they were all four of these things. So the wise men were magicians, they were enchanters, they were Chaldeans, and they were astrologers. It's all synonyms for the same kind of person. And the one that's so intriguing to me in that list is the first one, magicians. Raise your hand real high if you've heard of the wise men referred to as the magi, M-A-G-I. All right, good, lots of people. 
That I think is the better word and that's the one I'm gonna go with instead of wise men for the rest of the sermon if I can remember to say it. But it's easy to see how that word magi, M-A-G-I, is very close to the word M-A-G-I-C, magic or magician. But the interesting thing is magi doesn't come from the word magic, it's the other way around. Magic comes from the word magi. In fact, magi is a non-translatable word. doesn't mean that it hasn't been translated. It just means that it probably shouldn't be translated. Magi means magi. There's nothing else it means. It just means itself. It's referring to an ancient, very ancient tribe of people who were uh, part of the Medes. And they were pagan priests. Now, as soon as we say that word pagan, especially when we follow it with priests, it kind of like gives us the willies a little bit. Like, oh, that's, that's weird. You know, that's kind of uncomfortable. But these priests, is, you know, they, they worshiped gods who were not Yahweh. But if we look at their practices, they would probably remind you very much of the Levitical priests in the Old Testament, the tribe of Israel, the Levites, the, the Levitical tribe that was given the priesthood. Because these priests, the Magi, they uh, inherited their priesthood from their fathers. They served in a temple. They wore fancy garments when they served. They sacrificed animals. They made blood sacrifices. They, they performed burnt offerings. Like if you look historically at what they did, it looked a whole lot like the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. In fact, these folks, if we remember that those four words are synonyms, these, this tribe can be traced all the way back. I think this is so amazing. All the way back to when the Lord called Abram. Remember when the Lord called Abram, where did he call him out of? Ur of the Chaldeans. So one of those words that Nebuchadnezzar used was the Chaldeans. So this was the same group of people that Abram was called out of to serve the Lord's purpose. Some scholars even think, and I don't know if this is true or not, but boy, would it be cool if it was. Um, some scholars think that the Magi were the same group of people who were found in Pharaoh's court when Moses showed up and had kind of like the showdown with the staff turning into the snake and that whole deal. Could have been the same group of people. So is all of this fascinating? I think it is. I hope you think it is. Is it historical conjecture? Sure, it is. But I also think that it makes sense. If you remember from Scripture, the whole overarching story of the whole of Scripture is that the Lord said from the beginning, God said from the beginning that He was going to send a Savior to save His people, to rescue His people. And then He promised that that Savior was going to come through the descendants of Abraham, that all the nations would be blessed through this coming Messiah, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So isn't it like totally incredible, but also completely reasonable to think that here in Matthew 2, this traveling group of magi, these descendants of the Chaldeans, these descendants of the same exact people group that the Lord called Abram out of would come and fall down at the feet of Jesus and worship him. Wouldn't that be like just like something the Lord would do? 
I mean, it's just crazy to think. So it makes sense to me. The Magi were never rulers of empires. They actually tried once and it didn't work out very well for them. But they have been historically always the power kind of behind the throne. They were the advisors to kings. They were the ones who legitimized someone's kingship. When someone kind of came in and took over and uh, like one empire ended and another one began, it was sort of the magi who legitimized that king taking over. But one thing we mentioned a little earlier was that they were watching for something to happen and they knew, this is so interesting to me, they knew when they saw this sign in the heavens that not just any king was born, but that it was the Jewish king that was born. When they showed up and spoke with Herod, they didn't say, hey, we, the, we saw a sign in the skies that a, a, a king has arrived. No, they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Almost as if they were waiting for this specific person. Well, how could they have known that? Let's go back to, to Daniel chapter four, just very quickly. This is a passage, part of the passage we already read, but it said, at last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom uh, there is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. I'm gonna stop right there. Isn't that interesting? that Daniel, the Daniel that we know and love from Scripture, was at one point chief of the Magi. He was chief of the Magi. He not only held a position of prominence in the court of kings, but he held a position of prominence with this group. He was the chief of the Magi. And we know that Daniel was completely committed to serving God. So don't you think it's reasonable that while he was there in this position, that he would have talked about the coming Messiah. And the Magi being who they were and having the habits that they had passed down from centuries, they would have archived this. They would have taken what they learned from Daniel, Daniel and they would have written it down and they would have taught it and taught it and taught it to descendants so that by the time the arrival of the Christ actually happens, They've been watching for it. They've been waiting for it. They've been tracking the stars. Nebuchadnezzar called them astrologers. And at that time, astronomy, which is the science, and astrology, which is kind of the superstition, were kind of all wrapped up in one. Kind of hard to figure out what, which one of those they were participating in more. But they would have been watching the sky for signs, and then they saw one. So whether or not the Lord actually speaks to us through the sky now still is a matter for another time. But here's what we do know is that when these wealthy magi, these powerful, learned, well-educated, well-researched, expectant kingmakers saw what was happening in the sky they knew exactly what it meant. They didn't just guess that something significant was happening. They knew exactly what it meant. And then they acted on it. It's easy to see why this story is included in Matthew because what Matthew is trying to do over and over and over again is make the point that Jesus is 
king. So when the most famous kingmakers in history show up and say to Herod, hey, I know you think you're the king of the Jews, but you're not. A new one's been born. That's a reason to to include it in 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 the account. All right. So let's come back to 2023. We've been back in history. Let's come back to 2023 in a minute because all of this is really interesting. But remember that Matthew's point in writing his gospel was to convince people that Jesus was king. When I look out in this group, I think probably most of you already believe that. I don't have to convince you or Matthew doesn't have to convince you that Jesus is king, at least not in the same way. Do you need to be convinced? So how can I take this passage and help you? How can I make this relevant to you in 2023, a story you've heard a million times? Well, I think we're going to try to do it this way. When we read this passage, I think there are three types of people represented, and it would be helpful for all of us, myself included, to consider which of these three categories we fit in. And maybe we fit in more than just one. Maybe we fit in all of them. So the first category is this, the opposition. The passage says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I'm going to save the specifics on Herod, what he was like and the kind of things that he did for next week. But suffice it to say for today that when he found out that the new king was born, he felt threatened and he immediately started strategizing ways to preserve his power and his authority and his position. Herod enjoyed his life quite a bit and the luxuries that went with it. And as far as he was concerned, anybody who was going to try to change that needed to be destroyed. Well, doesn't that kind of like sound like people nowadays, you know? I mean, it actually, in reality, sounds like people in every time because ever since the fall of man, this is what human beings have been like. We like our own way. We don't like inconvenience. We don't like change. And we really, really don't like things that are outside of our control. We see it from the smallest child to the greatest ruler of any empire or nation and in every kind of person in between. None of us, no category of person is immune to this reaction. When I think about my own life, the worst decisions I've ever made, the decisions that have hurt the most people or hurt people the most or that have caused the, the most distrust in a relationship have always been because I screwed something up because I wanted my own way or I didn't want to change in some way, or I didn't want to lay something down that I was holding on to. We're all like this. The fundamental problem of every human being is that we need a savior. And over all of time, people have heard about a savior. People, billions of people have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And many, unfortunately, have rejected it because they're comfortable in their own way or they don't like the implications of what they would have to give up for Jesus to be their king. And we would do well to remember that this does not only apply to non-believers. It applies to all of us. Christians, we do this all the time, okay? There are things that we don't want to let go of. There are luxuries that we really, really enjoy that we don't want to give up. There are habits that we don't want to make the effort to try to break. 
there are things that have hurt us that we don't feel like letting go of and forgiving other people for. Stuff we just want to hang on to. But then a king comes along and for us to respond to that king appropriately, it means inconvenience or discomfort or change. And so we often push back. So is that you? The next category is this, the indifferent. We see people who are indifferent. And this one's interesting to me because I don't think I ever even thought of this group in this passage before. It says this, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. I always thought of this story as like the Magi and Herod. But then there's this group in between, the chief priests and the scribes. Now consider for a moment how embarrassing, how embarrassed these people should have been. These were the folks who, it was their job to know the Jewish scriptures. It was their job to know the prophecies and they totally missed it. They weren't paying attention. And so then these foreigners show up from Babylon, no less, you know, like Babylon is like the, like the enemy territory, right? These foreigners show up and they're not, they're, they not only didn't miss it, they show up looking specifically for the king of the Jews. And these guys should have known, but they weren't even looking. So what can we learn from that? Well, Romans chapter three says that the Jews have been entrusted with the oracles of God. We have so much more, I think. We have our Bibles, the living word of God available to us in so many ways, in, it's available to us every day. We can be thankful that we are educated well enough to be able to read and we can engage with the word of God on a daily basis. We can read it, we can listen to it, we can teach others about it, we can be taught by others regarding it. Our access to the living word of God is unprecedented in history. And yet, we often set it off to the side, dust the dust off of it on Sunday morning, bring it to church, and then set it back on our shelves when we go home. And Jesus warned us about missing stuff because we're not paying attention. He said this in Matthew 16. He was speaking to the Pharisees. He said, he answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning... It will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Red at night, sailor's delight. Remember that one? We have all of this information. The Bible can illuminate so many things in our lives and help us navigate this place, but we often forget to go there. There was another place where Jesus spoke of the parable of the ten virgins. You remember that? Five of them were wise, five of them were foolish. The foolish ones did not take oil for their lamps. And so when the bridegroom came, they were not prepared. And he was speaking then of the coming Messiah. But there's a, there's a biblical commentator named William Barclay who says something about this, which I really love. He says there's a universal truth available to all of us in the parable of the ten virgins. And it's this. It warns us that there are certain things that cannot be got at the last minute. It is far too late for a student to be preparing when the day of the examination has come. 
It is too late for a man to acquire a skill or a character if he has not already got it when some task offers itself to him. It is so with us and God. So let us strive to not be people who miss it. Let's instead use our resources that the Lord in His goodness has given us, the Word of God available to us, so that we can grow and flourish in it, so that when our King calls us to action, we can be prepared. Amen? And the third group are the worshipers. These are the magi. It says, For we saw His star when it rose and have come to worship Him. No matter what you think about the Magi, what we do know for sure is they came to worship Jesus. They didn't know he was Jesus. They knew he was the king of the Jews. They came to worship the king of the Jews. And it's been, easier, it's been easy for me to categorize these guys my whole life as kind of the good guys. You know, like they, they traveled to see Jesus. They didn't tell on him to Herod. They gave him expensive stuff. You know, like they, they're category. They, they're, they're good guys. They go in that category. But as I've been looking, over them, looking at them the past couple of weeks, I've, my understanding of them has gotten a little more complicated because they were, they were pagans, you know what I mean? Like they, they served false gods. So what are they doing here, you know? They were into stuff like astrology and sorcery that doesn't make sense to me and I don't even like really want to think about it, you know? It's like weird stuff that makes me uncomfortable. But when they saw the enormity of the arrival of the promised king of the Jews, they put their lives on hold. They endured long, expensive, uncomfortable, probably dangerous travel at great personal cost. They sacrificed their own wealth to give unbelievable gifts, all to fall down and worship at the feet of a toddler. Because this wouldn't have happened at the stable. This would have happened perhaps like a year and a half later. So no matter what we think of them, they got this one right. They were worshiping the right person. And that should be the reaction of all of us when God illuminates our hearts with some sign of who he is. Because really, that's what happened. They saw a sign of the magnitude of who this king of the Jews was, and they reacted in worship. And can you imagine, can you imagine what Mary and Joseph thought of all of this, you know, when this crew shows up and worships their toddler? That's something else. All right. So which one of those or multiples of those categories do you fit in? It would be really good to do some soul searching and ask the Lord to help you with that this week. We're going to be talking more about that next week when we get into Herod, but I want to leave you with one last thought, and this definitely falls in the category of historical conjecture, so bear with me, but I'm going to tell you this because for me anyway, and I hope for you, it just like opens this sense of wonder and amazement of what the Lord did in this story and just how magnificent he is. So check this out. This is so cool. This, this is, by the way, the connection to that verse in Hebrews 1.1, where long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. Okay, so, so listen to this. Uh, are you familiar with the Jewish holiday Rosh Hashanah? 
You know, have you heard of that? Even if you're not sure what it is. I know like, for most of my life, I like saw it on the calendar, but I'm like, I'm not Jewish. So I just let that one go by. We don't celebrate that one, you know. But Rosh Hashanah is the celebration of the Jewish New Year. And we just had our New Year celebration. This is their New Year celebration. It happens at a different time of the year because they follow a different calendar. Our New Year happens on January 1st. Theirs happens on Tishri 1st. That's the name of the calendar or the name of the month, Tishri 1st. And because their calendar works a little differently than ours, Tishri 1st isn't always on the same date as our calendar. And it falls usually somewhere in September, but the days, it kind of different day in September each year. But when the Jewish New Year happens, it's marked by the blowing of trumpets or the shofar, which is like this trumpety kind of horn. And on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, they blow the trumpet 100 times to announce to the Jewish people as a reminder to turn back to the Lord in repentance. And they continue blowing that horn in the temple, not a hundred times, but they blow it a number of times every day for the next 10 days as this continual reminder of turning back to the Lord. Not only that, but Rosh Hashanah was historically the time when Jewish kings were inaugurated. So even if the past king died and the new king took over in the middle of the year, they would start their reign then, but it would officially begin. Their inauguration would happen on Rosh Hashanah. So remember that, kind of file it away. And now we're going to go to Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, and it says this crazy thing. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. That's pretty intense. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations. Okay, so don't forget Rosh Hashanah. But there's an area of scholarly study, I'm not kidding you, called astrotheology. It is not like astrology with a Christian stamp on it. This is more of like a historical study. It's like kind of studying the history of the movement of the stars throughout time and kind of lining that up with uh, biblical events because these scholars recognize that ancient people, whether they were right or not, looked to the sky because they believed the Lord was telling them things there. And so these scholars are trying to understand how ancient people thought so that they can understand the scriptures more. So if, and it's a big if, if the vision that we just read in Revelation, the vision of, that John had, was talking about things that we could actually recognize in the skies, like constellations in the skies, then we should be able to identify the elements of that vision. And these astrotheologians have done that. They say that the woman in the vision is the constellation Virgo, and that the dragon in the vision is the constellation Scorpio. And if they're right, then we can go back in history 
And we can figure out when these two constellations were positioned in such a way that Virgo would appear to be clothed with the sun, like it says in the vision. Well, this is crazy. I'm not sure I can say this without crying because it's just so amazing. On September 11th of the year 3 BC, there was a 90-minute window from sunset to dusk. Ah, where Virgo was in the west, clothed with the setting sun, the moon was at her feet, just like it says in the vision, and Scorpio was poised to devour the child. Not only that, but another constellation called Leo, the lion, which many considered to be royal because there's a star in it called Regulus, which is called the king star. Leo was also visible in the, the sky, and even crazier, was that at that exact time, Jupiter, which is regarded as the king planet, was exactly aligned with Regulus, which would have made it seem extremely, extraordinarily bright. Now, the astronomy of that is true. Like that alignment happened because scientists can figure that out. Is it the sign that the wise men saw, that the magi saw? I don't know. But if it is, then on that date, September 11th, 3 BC, was Rosh Hashanah. It was Tishri 1. And it, that means that at that moment, there was the announcement of a new year, a call to the Israelites to repent and turn back to the Lord. There were trumpets being blown in the temple on the inauguration day of a new king. Isn't that unbelievable? Not unbelievable. So the band, you can start coming up. We're, we're going to talk more about this next week, about this idea that Jesus is the king and that it was announced in many ways and that in this event, in, in chapter two, these people saw it and they recognized it and they reacted to it in worship. And that's my encouragement and my call to you is to not let a moment go by in which the Lord is speaking to you and you're recognizing in your heart because of the illumination that he's giving to your heart that he is king. Don't let that moment go by without taking action, without doing something, without responding to him in some way. And specifically this morning, my prayer is going to be uh, about that first group, the opposition. Remember we talked about the opposition. If you've got some habit in your life or something in your life that, that the Lord's calling you to do, but you don't want to do it because you know what it will mean that you have to give up, my prayer for you this morning is that now would be the time that you respond to the Lord. Amen? Let's stand, and we're going to sing, but we're going to pray first, and then we'll worship the Lord. Lord Jesus, we are so, so thankful to you this morning, Lord. We recognize that you are our rightful king. Lord, we thank you for making it so very clear in your scriptures, this announcement that you are our king. And so, Lord, I ask, Father, this morning, all over this place, including in my own heart, that you would help us 
to react with bowed knee and worshipful hearts that we would respond to you in the only appropriate way, which is to worship your holy name. And Lord, no matter what that means for me and for anyone else, no matter what that means that we would have to give up, what we would have to lay down, what would need to change, what uncomfortable thing we might need to be called to, Lord, I ask you that we would, our hearts would be adjusted by you, that we would gladly do anything that you call us to do. Gladly do it. Father, we, we ask for this miracle all over this room. And Father, we know you are faithful and famous for doing just that. So Lord, we ask for your help this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.